things. A life isn't made from one thing, one big moment, one huge success. It is created moment by moment, often with pieces that don't look like anything beautiful on their own, but are the very fabric of who God meant for us to become. As we pack lunches, raise kids, love our neighbors, and simply be who he created us to be, nothing more, nothing less. And I love this thought, part of, uh, of not being about a single big moment, which means if it's not about a big moment that makes us, it's also not a big moment that can break us or tear our life story apart. And yet often we can get hung up on a moment or two, can't we? that just reside in your head telling you how you can't make a difference, how you've done more harm than good, and yet God is more focused on the small things in our lives that are consistent over time. You know what's great about this video is that none of those dads are famous. Maybe internet famous, a couple of them, especially that guy that ran down the hill to save that other kid. That was pretty impressive. But we don't know their names you know, newspaper articles weren't written about them and their moments. They weren't featured uh, on the news for their acts. They simply acted. They responded. You know the difference between them and you? They were caught on film. That's about it. You see, we all have this ability to be there in the right times if we're willing to act. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, it says this, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let's consider this. Let's focus on this for a little bit. And this series about dreaming small is about figuring out how to better be there for one another. And so we led off with this thought of being devoted to one another. Now looking at how we can stir one another up how we can spur one another on. See, it's all about these simple, small acts over time. See, those dads, they didn't consider, they didn't weigh their options, they didn't do a risk-reward you know, pie chart before they decided to respond. They just acted out of their deep devotion to their kids, to their family. And that's really what Mike was talking about last week with this thought of being devoted to one another. Do we have a sense of devotion, of deep commitment to one another? I mean, yeah, we do to our kids. We probably do to most of our family, except for that one uncle, you know. But watch it. Are you that one uncle? <laughs> I love that. That's great. Um, but, but do we have that same sense of devotion for one another? I mean, if we're honest, I don't think we really do. You know, we don't look around this room necessarily and, and feel that sense of devotion like we do to our own kin. And yet this verse talking about the being based on this deep devotion to love one another, to spur one another on. I think we spur one another on about getting on a horse and getting the horse to go faster and to trot and to run. And I don't ride a lot of horses, so I'll probably get some of the terminology wrong. But, but I know that over Christmas break, we went horseback riding, and, and we were ready to move a little bit quicker. And so I gave my horse a quick, swift kick like, hey, <laughs> if you want to go a little faster. You know, and I mean, maybe a little bit, but I'm, I'm not that comfortable. If I'm honest, I don't think I was riding that horse as much as that horse was taking me on a ride. Yeah? 
because I'm not confident in it, because I don't do that a lot, and some of you ride horses all the time, and so you know what it is to spur on a horse, to get them to do what you want, and to give them a swift kick, and sometimes we as believers need the exact same thing, but we're usually standoffish. Well, we, we don't, I, don't, I don't want to push them too far. You know, I don't want to, to come alongside and, and defend anybody. And so this thought is all about love. In love, we're to spur one another on towards love. We need to be reminding each other how best can we be loving others, loving God, and loving people. The pulpit's about to take a jump off the stage. And another translation of that is to stir up you know, stirring the pot. That's a bad thing, isn't it? Don't stir the pot. You don't want to stir up the pot. I tell you what, though, we make Sunday uh, chili, and it's the best thing, and it's going to start raining. Football, you put it in the crock pot early, let it simmer all day, come back, watching the Broncos. And I tell you what, you got to stir the pot a little bit. You got to get the good stuff that's on the bottom to come back up to the top. And sometimes with us as Christians, we let sometimes the good things settle to the bottom and they're not at the top of our lives and they're not something that we're acting on regularly. And we need somebody to come alongside and stir us up. Rock the boat a little bit. You know, wake the people up and we need this of one another. Let's look closer at what Paul is talking about and why he's talking about this in Hebrews. We'll go back a chapter to chapter 9. And it's talking about uh, this comparison of the new and the old, the earthly holy places and how it is now with Jesus in comparison to how it was in the Old Testament. So we pick it up, chapter 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent was prepared. The first section in which uh, were the lampstands and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that had budded, and the tablets of the covenant above it, were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of these things. We cannot now speak in detail. So he's talking about how this used to be. There was a room inside the tabernacle, a temporary tent that was set up, and then in the temple there was a curtain, and inside of the holy place were different acts, pieces that were used in worship, and then inside the most holy place was something called the mercy seat. And it was the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of it, it was overlaid with gold, and the lid of that with two cherubim coming over it, almost touching their wings together, was the mercy seat. And this is said to be the place that God's presence would come and reside and sit on the mercy seat. And the priests would go into the holy place, and they would bring the offerings uh, and sacrifices from the people, some of the blood into the holy place, uh, where, where the blood would be left as an atonement for the people's sins, and then once a year, the high priest. And only on the Day of Atonement could he go into the holy of holies, the most holy place, and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat on top of this golden cherubim-laden uh, slab where God's presence wants for the forgiveness and the atonement of all the people. And so he's describing this scene of, of how it took place and what would go on. 
We'll pick it up in chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so he describes a scene that, that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Agreement was supposed to be left wanting. Us wanting for more, us awaiting a Savior who would come. And he describes him as this great high priest who entered into the most holy place for the final time to atone for all sin of all mankind. And I know this is weird. I mean, just thinking about this, and they would sacrifice, they would bring blood, and just a system that we don't totally understand, and yet he's talking about this perfection, that this atonement would be brought to us so that we could be in a relationship with God. Then we go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he talks about this, and he puts the old with the new, and he says, now... With this new covenant, with this new agreement, I want you to walk with confidence. Because of what has taken place, we can have confidence to enter directly into the holy place, into the very presence of God, where in the old system, only the priest could go into the holy place. Only the high priest, and only once a year could the high priest enter into the holy of holies, but not you, not any longer. We have direct access to God. By the blood of Jesus. You see, it used to be by the blood of heifers or by the blood of sacrificial lambs. And he's saying, but now by the blood of the true lamb, the son of God, into a new and living, whereas the old was about death. And it, and it wasn't alive. This wasn't a vibrant, growing thing, verse 20, into this new and living thing that we have through the curtain. This curtain that was a barrier, a reminder of our separation between God and man has now been ripped, has now been torn into, and we have this direct access because of the great priest fulfilling all the duties of the priest that would have come before him. Therefore, he says, let us, let us what? First, let us draw near. Now that we can, now that we have direct access to God, draw near. Draw near. 
We looked at this a few weeks ago, James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Since you can go into his presence, go. Go daily. Go all the time. What would stop you now that you have this access? Let us also hold fast to the hope. Hold fast because it says the one who gave this hope of an eternal life is faithful. Everything that he said that he would do, he will follow through with. And so hold on to that tightly so that you don't forget it. Then he says this, consider. Or, or pay attention is actually what the language is talking about. And one of the commentary writers said this. He said, it's kind of like fixing the eyes of your spirit upon not just pay attention mentally, but your soul, your spirit. Fix the eyes of your spirit on this, on how we can stir one another up, about how we can spur one another on to love and to good deeds. You see, we only had death as an option in the old covenant. And while there was atonement, it was still a sacrificium surrounding death. But now because of the life of Jesus, we have this living thing and, and this relationship with God and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's spur one another on to loving, to good deeds. And, and then he continues on to say in verse 25, and uh, not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What he's talking about here is not saying, hey, remind people to come out on Sunday mornings. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, and don't isolate yourselves. Spur one another up. Stir one another in such a way that you don't isolate yourself because the opposite of being there for one another is to be isolated. Now, I'm a bit of an introvert, and so I get what it's like. Like I would some days just assume, I'll just go home. I'll just go home and I'll watch some TV, spend some time with my family. And I need this. I need to be spurred on and stirred up to be reminded to be with God's people. And he's saying, but don't neglect that. Don't isolate yourself because you have a hard time loving one another when you're always by yourself. And so be committed to your time together. Now, this does include Sunday morning. It includes it, but it's not about that. And yet we translate it that way so many times. Be in community with one another. Be in relationship with one another. And if you see somebody isolating themselves and pulling off into their, their own world, go and remind them. In love, go and stir them up and remind them of what they're called to. He's saying be devoted let our, the eyes of our spirit be devoted like the father's eyes are on his son or his daughter. And this is a devotion that we are to have with one another. We've heard this saying that blood is thicker than water, right? And yet we are connected as family by the blood of Jesus. So yeah, blood is thicker than water. And what kind of a devotion can we have for one another because of the sacrifice of Jesus? You know, I think of a couple of stories, one in the Old Testament, the book of 2 Samuel of David. And David with Bathsheba, if you don't know, you can read about it in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. But in essence, it says that when the time that uh, kings went off to war is kind of how it started, David didn't. And he hung back, even though all of his commanders were off at war. And as he hangs back, he sees this girl that catches his eye. And he calls her in because he's a king and he can do that kind of thing. 
and he sleeps with her, and he gets her pregnant. And then the story goes on, and, and, and I read this story sometimes, and I don't understand it because Dave's known as a man after God's own heart, and yet Scripture gives us this picture uh, of a guy that then, after he finds out that she's pregnant, invites the husband back and, and, and says, hey, go be with your wife. You know, you've earned it. You deserve a night with your wife. And, and, but he's like, no, how could I ever do that? My men are off fighting, and so that doesn't work. David ends up sending him off to the front lines to be killed. If you don't know this story, you should read about it. Yes, it's in the Bible. Um, and, and as the, the man is killed, Uriah, the husband is killed, then he brings Bathsheba into his own home, and, and one day Nathan comes to him. And in verse, chapter 12, verse 1, it says this, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There are two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him as it was his, with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to be prepared for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against that man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And so can you imagine the scene that Nathan was bold enough to go to the king and to raise this story uh, and to present this to David? And, and then in verse 7, look what Nathan says. Nathan said to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And he goes on to say all the things that God had done for him, but Nathan calls him out. He says, you are that man. You are the man that had so much and took from one that had so little. You are that guy going to the king of Israel. And the boldness that that would take, and yet God, it says, God had called him. And this thought of stirring one another up, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds, that Nathan was faithful to God and would go to him and bring such an accusation because he knew what was going on. But I also think he knew David's heart. In verse 13, later on, uh, it says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Because it was brought to him, because Nathan was bold enough, he was able to see his own sin, the darkness in his life, the thing that he had done. Now, David had clarity when it was about somebody else, right? Aren't we the same sometimes? Oh, yeah, that guy's way off over there, but we don't see it when it comes to ourselves. And so David was willing to say, I have sinned. And, and, and so Nathan goes on to say, he is, God has forgiven you. You know, there's going to be consequences to these actions, but he's forgiven you. You're still in a relationship with him. I also think of Peter and Paul. If we jump into the New Testament, into Galatians, 
Uh, these are two guys that are out planting churches and, and they're out spreading the gospel in, in the New Testament times in the book of Acts. And, uh, and it says this, but when Cephas or Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I love that. To his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? He's saying, and I love those words, uh, another author, uh, Giza Verne, said this, that this thought of stirring one another up is so that their step may take the way of God. This thought, if, if our step may take the way of God, and look at what Peter or Paul had said. He says, uh, oh, da, da, da. when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He was saying simply, Peter, I know you. I know your heart. I know you love God. I know you're trying to do everything that you can to spread the gospel. But right now, your life is not in step with the truth of the gospel. And there are going to be times that we see that in one another's lives also. See, there's other verses about encouraging one another, and we're going to get to some of those that are just positive and being reinforcing, but sometimes we need to lovingly confront our brothers and sisters, and we need to be open to this ourselves when we see that some of their actions, some of their attitudes are not in line with the truth of the gospel. You see, to dream small, we may have to say some tough things to the people that are closest to us. Maybe one of the most difficult things that we are called to do. And yet I remember in my home ec class in I would say sixth or seventh grade and there was a test and they said, you know, how can you tell if the burner on the stove is on? And my answer was, you touch it real fast. <laughs> right? That's true. I am correct. That is a way to find out if the burner is on. And yet, would any of us instruct, that was wrong, uh, by the way, uh, if you're wondering, but would we ever allow our, our small children to do that, or do we instruct them all the time? Do we put a little bit of fear in them? Don't ever touch that! Don't touch it! It's hot! Right? We scare our children a little bit because we care about them, because we're devoted to them. And sometimes we spur one another on because somebody else taught us a lesson. Somebody else showed us this way of doing these things, and so we pass that on. Other times, we've learned the hard way. We've been burned by it. We went about, maybe somebody did advise us, but we chose to ignore them and we got burned. And so we want to pass it on to others. And, and some of us have been at this Christian thing a little bit longer than others. You know who you are. <laughs> and possibly you just are attuned to this and you can see things further out than some of the rest of us. And we need you. We need you to come along and say, hey, I've seen when people have this attitude or these actions that you have, and you don't see it now, and it's not a big deal now, but I just got to tell you what's coming, and you stir us up. You re-stir the good stuff up from the bottom, and you remind us, spur us on towards love 
and good deeds. And yet this can be hard to do. I want to turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy talks about how we can be better outfitted to do this. And it says this in verse 16. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. This book is so important that we're spending time in it regularly on our own. And we've talked over the last number of weeks about how you don't just need us on Sunday morning to come and tell you what it says because the Holy Spirit will reveal it to you and will teach you along and you have the ability to decipher what this word is about. And as we learn it for ourselves, it's good to help others also. Chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and having uh, uh, with complete patience. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions. You see, as you know the word better, you can use it to reprove, which is just to correct people. To rebuke, which is sometimes about a little bit more sharp disapproval in order to exhort, to strongly encourage or attempt to influence, to stir one another up, to spur one another on. And in Psalm 119, 105, it says that your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light to my path. And so his word will illuminate what our lives should look like so that we can be in step with the ways of God. And so again, all of this, and I love how it puts it in this second Timothy, that you can rebuke, reprove, exhort with complete patience. We're not supposed to just charge at each other. We're supposed to come to each other in love because of our deep devotion to one another. And we promise you this, the elders of this church, that you will not gather for yourself here teachers who are just going to tell you what you want to hear. That won't take place here. And yet it says that there a time is coming when that's what people are going to want. And they're just going to want people to come in gently to them and say, you know what, you're fine, you're okay, do what you want to do, do what feels right. But we're saying that this body at Florence Christian Church will be there to stir you up, to spur you on, to say difficult things in love and in complete patience. You know, this American mindset of we're supposed to mind our own business, right? Isn't that the world that we live in when we see things and, 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 uh, and just, just, just mind your own business? You know what? That doesn't work within the body. We can't just mind our own business. And this isn't talking about being judgmental. This is not talking about being unloving. This is talking about supporting one another in the same way that you would do for your children because of your deep love for them. Jesus, in, in John chapter 14, refers to this as he's preparing to leave. And, and I, I don't know if this is accurate uh, conjugation, but, but I said that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the ultimate spur honorers, okay? 
And uh, in John 14, 26, it says this, that, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so we're not in this alone. It says that the Holy Spirit's job is to come alongside us and to remind us of the things that Jesus taught. And for the disciples, it was the things that they learned firsthand walking and talking with Jesus. For us, is the things that we read directly out of Scripture, but it says that the Holy Spirit will reveal even more to you. And that's why it was so good for Jesus to leave, because he was bound to a time and a place, but as he left, his Spirit and his presence was available to all believers so that he could come alongside us. And he's always going to be in love and with complete patience. And yet he's going to speak to us difficult things at times so that our lives can be lined up so that we can take the way of God. So as we dream small this week, let's consider how we can be fiercely devoted to one another. Because we are family that is connected by blood, let us consider how we can fix the eyes of our spirits on ways that we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And I want to close with these words again. A life isn't made from one thing, one big moment, one huge success. It is created moment by moment, often with pieces that don't look like anything beautiful on their own but are the very fabric of who God meant for us to become as we pack lunches, raise kids, love neighbors, and simply be who he created us to be. Let's pray. Lord, I thank